This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Today on CityCast Denver, it's Monday, and we're looking ahead at the news of the week. Governor Polis signed a bill that prohibits the sale or distribution of products containing harmful PFAS chemicals. To learn more, check out our May 16th episode with Madhvi Chitur, the 11-year-old Colorado climate activist behind the legislation. Speaking of politics, primary ballots should be landing in your mailbox this week, so look out for that. Also, according to Denverite, home buying prices in Denver are supposedly slowing down slightly. Still, most housing options are unattainable, not to mention we just don't have enough. Here on CityCast Denver, we're looking for people in the city who have big ideas on how to solve our big issues, like housing. And you're going to hear from one of them in this episode. Today is Monday, June 6th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Hopefully we're not going to show the video, right? No. Our... <laughs> no. <laughs> we're we're in the process of uh, transitioning this from the office to the nursery, so it's like pretty messy right now. Adam Estroff is a member of Denver Yimby, a community group focused on increasing housing and transit options for all residents across the city. Welcome to CityCast Denver. Thanks for having me, Bree. It's nice to be here. So Adam, I, I think the term NIMBY is pretty well known, which means like not in my backyard, but you identify as a YIMBY, which means yes in my backyard. What's a YIMBY? It sort of started out as a tongue-in-cheek response to NIMBY, but it's now morphed into a movement of folks all around the country who are, are working on policies to fight high housing costs, high rent, uh, and asking questions like, why can't we build starter homes in our communities? Um, you know, why are we only building giant apartment buildings and giant mansions? And, um, you know, I think for me at the end of the day, though, the core of being a Yimby is is about, you know, valuing people, valuing our community and saying that our neighborhoods aren't these scarce resources that we need to be uh, afraid for and keep people out of. So you kind of touched on what I think we're going to talk about here What's the problem in Denver when it comes to housing? Like, why don't we have enough of it? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we can talk a lot about exclusionary zoning as as a single policy. And, you know, I think when we talk about housing, it's really hard because we often talk about abstract things like floor area ratio and area median income and all kinds of different acronyms, even, you know, YIMBY and NIMBY. Yeah. Um, but basically how this is affecting us right now is that in on over 50% of the lots in Denver, the residential lots, you could knock down whatever building is there and build a 6,000 square foot home with basically no oversight from anyone. But if you tried to build three 1,200 square foot homes in a slightly smaller building, that would be illegal. Uh... And that's the reality in our city. We need to ask these questions about what is allowed in our neighborhoods. It's really less than 20% of, of neighborhoods in the city where you could build an attached house at all. Adam, can you explain what exclusionary zoning is? 
This is something that's not unique to Denver. It was passed all over the United States in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, it was actually a reaction to the Supreme Court banning the ability of cities to explicitly zone neighborhoods based on race. So what they did instead was they created single unit and multi-unit neighborhoods and used that as a proxy for race. And you know we saw that most recently in Denver when we had massive displacement, you know, over the last decade in areas that formerly had a lot more people of color in them. And, you know, that that was kind of built into the system. Thinking about this rezoning um, conversation, how does that bring housing costs down? Like, how does it work on that level? Well, so the the fixed cost that's sort of hurting all of us is land. Um, and, you know, my house is a great example of that. The building is is not worth a lot of money. It's, it's the parcel, you know, which is really close to downtown and South Broadway and a bunch of transit. You know, that's what's worth money. So the only way to build something that's affordable is to, you know, kind of add additional units. It's about subdividing that land cost. It, without subdividing that cost, you can't get affordability. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Why do you think there are folks in the city who don't want us to subdivide land, who don't want us to add more housing units to one parcel? I think there's a lot of different reasons people feel that way. Um, You know, it's easy to focus on some of the most nefarious. Um, You know, when we were advocating for group living changes, people threatened white flight and, you know, said our neighborhoods were going to be destroyed. Um, You know, but really, that's not what drives most of of NIMBYism. There's a great book about it called Neighborhood Defenders. And, you know, NIMBY isn't a club that people join like YIMBY. It's, it's generally a thing someone does that one time about that project near them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we as people are kind of hardwired to be concerned about change near us, um, kind of near our den, um, and to feel a little worried by it. And then in, in addition to that, there, there are stories, some true and some false from our past. There's a myth that apartments and multi-unit buildings lower property values, and that's not true. Um, but that's from that era when that was used to kind of foster some negative negative things. There's just a cultural belief in kind of the white picket fence American dream. You know, this is how people think they're supposed to live, some of it. Um, you know, and, and I think it's just... It's fear. Yeah, it, it's, it's a lot and of fear it, it's to hard. Me. Yeah, it's a lot of fear to me because... Um, when I stand on my porch, I can see two affordable housing buildings and one in process of being built. And I understand that to some people, that that represents the thing you're talking about. Well, when we have people from lower incomes in our neighborhood, they don't, oh my God, I've heard the worst things. They don't respect the property and all this like weird stuff. And it is, it's just judgment and fear over things that we don't know. And if we operate out of fear, we're not solving problems. But like giant apartment buildings aren't necessarily the answer either, right? Or they're one part of it. But Adam, I have to say, if it's a giant ugly building, 
it kind of bums me out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so let's we can talk about the big apartment buildings too. Let's talk that's, about them. That's the other side of of this housing crisis. So in our neighborhoods, we only allow you know really big single family homes. Not going to hate on anybody who who builds one or chooses to have one, but that's all that's allowed. And downtown, um, you know, near near highways, we allow apartment buildings. And the the primary design that we see nowadays is called the Texas Donut. It's basically all those buildings you see where it's that U shape of houses, and then there's the parking garage, and then they have like a pool or something in the middle. These buildings are basically parking garages with some housing on top. Uh, for a lot of reasons, they're very expensive and and they're problematic, um, you know, in their own ways. And the point I'm trying to make here is that I think there's a lot of desire for those buildings to solve the housing crisis, and they can't. And and I think. You know, I've supported a lot of these large apartment buildings because they are essential in, in the way we've built land use now. But it really is about how do we get homes that people can afford to buy, smaller buildings that are, you know, able to be built by local builders. So the solution is not necessarily build a bunch of giant apartment buildings, but have more options for how we can build more affordably in more places. I feel like a lot of people don't feel like they have any control over this process. They see the city changing around them and it feels out of control and it it, it feels like it's happening to us, not with us. Yes. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way, but it does involve us having this conversation about land use laws and, you know, who is who gets to belong in our communities? I mean, that's really what this is about because, you know, this intersects with so many issues. And when we talk about these apartment buildings, these are built by high traffic roadways, often highways. You know, we know air pollution is worse. Um, we can't warehouse affordable housing, you know, in, in polluted areas. That's not yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. So if you had a dream for the city, what would it look like? How would the city look if we could build the right way? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked, Bree, because I think we have really good examples of that in our city right now. Um, you know, I'm really happy I get to live in Baker. Um, Baker is a historic neighborhood. Half of it is a historic district. And, you know, we're two and a half times denser than most neighborhoods. We do have a lot of detached single family homes, but, you know, we have functioning transit. We have small commercial in our neighborhood and we have a great, you know, we have a lot of characters. We got a lot of culture. We got a lot of parks and green space. And um, I think that we have the neighborhoods that kind of represent what we need in our in our city today. So, okay, let's talk about the historic part for a second, because I have to say in, uh, you know, we're, we're both on Twitter. I wouldn't say that you are a preservationist. <laughs> and I wonder, I, I've just seen I, you be I critical of preservation. Yeah, I, I would disagree. And my main critique of preservation, I, I was a history major. You know, I do believe in history and preservation. I think it's really important. But um, one of the issues is that historic urban historic preservation has seen itself as divorced from a lot of the other issues that are facing our communities, um, most pressingly structural racism. And I think there is a great Denver Post article that sort of laid out Denver's issues there, where almost all of our landmarks just commemorate white people. Um, and you know, the one, the one building I think that we're talking about in particular is Tom's. The and Tom's I diner. That, yeah. The okay. Tom's diner building. On and I think that brought up a really interesting question, um, which was, you know, Tom's, I, I used to live in uptown for a little bit. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time at Tom's the business, but before Tom's the building, which is a car focused car centric 
building that is a knockoff design of a Denny's from Southern California. Um, you know, before it was that, it was a six-story apartment building. And so what history are we choosing to preserve? What, what history is decided to be valued of preserving? Because I, I think Tom's is gone, you know, sort of. Sure. The, the, the business that people wanted to preserve. Um, and and what, what did we preserve there? And I think we need to have those conversations in the context of other issues, you know, not just affordability and the environment, but also, um, you know, equity and whose stories are preserved. And my neighborhood really shows that. The eastern half of the district of the neighborhood, which was predominantly white, was made a historic district. The western half, which was predominantly Latino, was left out. And now that they've done this this survey of um, you know Chicano history, there was a building, a, a home, a few blocks from me that was serving as a youth center for LGBTQ Chicano youth. And that story wasn't told until now. And so I think that's my critique: is that historic preservation is part of everything else that we're doing in our city and cannot be considered separate from it. Yeah, yeah. And you're bringing up two really great examples of where historic preservation is used and how its subjectivity can sometimes lead us maybe in the wrong direction. I, I think the building is is pretty. It's distinct. I just walked past it last night. Um, but yeah, these are hard conversations because they touch on our feelings on, you know, are we serving we the community? The yes. <laughs> Is there a building in Denver that you have feelings about? Um, there are several. So I'm very partial to the the old school buildings, of course. Um, you know, I think those those are really beautiful. And I really like how some of them have been repurposed. I think obviously Union Station, you know, has, has been pretty good from a preservation standpoint. You know, I really like the one uh, that had the old spaghetti factory in it downtown, the old tram car building, you know, but I, I love living in a, in a historic uh, neighborhood and I love living by, you know, South Broadway as well. Well, and you also live in one of those neighborhoods that was pre-car, right? So it's mm -hmm. built more for people, like the ground level of it is for people. Like you've mentioned, there's commercial, there's parks, there's you know, amenities there, you know, there's even at one point there were doctor's offices, there were all kinds of things in your neighborhood. And that's not the case for every Denver neighborhood. So even our older neighborhoods could be a blueprint in some sense for how we approach future development. It's just a matter of how we do it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, these neighborhoods, when we were building these buildings that many people now claim are beautiful, although at the time people <laughs> thought every, everybody always thinks every new building is ugly fair. all through time. Totally there, There's fair. even a, uh, a Sumerian tablet in cuneiform about it, like where a guy in <laughs> several thousand BC is complaining about new buildings. It's, it's a thing. But, you know, we when when these nice buildings were being built, buildings that people think of as nice today, it was local builders who were kind of getting a lot of kits from catalogs, and they were competing on the quality of their craftsmanship and their aesthetic touches. And we can build a, you know, a building economy like that again, but it does involve having a conversation about our land use. We can have local companies building housing. Um, that's how it used to be, and, and we can do that here. So before I let you go, I know that you had an announcement to make. What would you like yeah. to share with our listeners? I'd like to announce that, you know, I've uh, filed to run for Denver City Council District 7. Uh, it's an open seat, goes down South Broadway. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be running to represent this district. Um, and I'm excited to have a bunch of conversations with all my neighbors and fight for an optimistic Denver uh, that can be welcoming and have abundant and affordable housing for everyone. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. 
That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, where today Peyton's got some resources for you on how to navigate that upcoming primary ballot. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. Where today, Peyton's got some resources for you on how to navigate. <laughs>